Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, or if you'd like to get a Bible out of the pew or chair in front of you, go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation. It's the very last book in the Bible. Are we okay here? Okay. I'm just making sure I can't always hear myself well and hope that you can hear me. Well, I, I, I hope that you can hear me. I'll leave it at that. Revelation chapter 3 is where we're at. If you're a guest with us today or if you've been away for a while, we have been studying through the book of Revelation beginning at chapter 1, verse 1, and moving our way through. We are now on the sixth of seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor, some churches that you probably wouldn't recognize in our day, but we're on the sixth of those letters, the letter to the church of Philadelphia. And so we're going to read that letter now from Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7. And it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God and out of heaven. And my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless His Word, and may His Spirit use His Word in our lives this day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, thank You for Your Word, for we know that Your Word is truth. We know that You sanctify us through the work of Your Word, by the power of Your Spirit, to the glory of God. And we pray that You would do that this day. May You strengthen the feeble. May You break the hearts of those who are hardened against you. And may we all come before you and sit at the feet of Jesus in worship and in adoration with the hope of eternity in your glorious presence. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Out of the seven letters, I think, personally, that this letter is the most encouraging. If you've not been here with us to study through the previous six, I encourage you to go back and catch up on those. If you've only missed one or two, hey, you don't have much to make up. But if you've missed all six, five before this, then go for it. Get in there, get after it. Do some binge listening, okay? I know you do binge watching. Do some binge listening and get caught up because this is so good. It's so important for us to understand this all together. 
and it's a message for the church through the ages. I think it's so important and such a great encouragement because I think we live in a day and time in which big is better, in which the, the more known you are, the more respected you are, the more followers you have, the more influence you have. And in the body of Christ, that's just not so. We live in a world that is predominantly made up of churches under the, the, the number 50. I said 5-0. We have a youth group that's larger than that. That doesn't make us more important, more faithful, more effective than these little churches like I grew up in that are scattered all over this world. You see, it's not about dominance. It's about faithfulness. And today, Christ is writing this letter to a faithful church. A faithful church in a little part of the world that, that wasn't known like some of the others, but was important Nonetheless, just like in his letter to the church in Smyrna, there was no rebuke. There was no corrective measures that were were provided. The closest one might come is when Jesus describes the church as having little power. But I will put before you that I don't think that has anything to do with a rebuke. I think it's merely a description of their of of who they were. It wasn't about its size, it wasn't about its building or an outreach program, it wasn't about a children's ministry or a budget or a food pantry, it was about faithfulness. And if that is I hope I don't think this should miss anyone here in the body of Christ. It's about faithfulness. It is about a life of faithfulness. And we have many among us who have been exemplary in lives of faithfulness. Some of them happen to have gray hair, some have none. Some of them are young people who've endured much and remained faithful. You see, it's not about age, it's not about location, it's about what God has called us to be as his people, and that is to be faithful. And this church was in the middle of Asia Minor, a faithful church. In the city, ancient city of Philadelphia, not the Philadelphia of the United States of America, as far as I know, they did not serve water ice. They did not have crack bags on the street. Nor, yes, yeah, some of you have never been there, have you? Nor did they have cheesesteaks, which are delicious. But, yeah, there we go. And, by the way, you need to order them wit, okay? You want you, you steak wit, and you can ask us later what that is. But this, this particular city of ancient Philadelphia was named after a king named Attalus Philadelphus. He was named that for his loyalty to his brother. And so that literally translated means brother love. And he was a loyal brother. And so the city was named after him. Situated along the Cogamus River on a plateau, it was along the Persian Royal Road that led from Susa, which is modern-day Iran, up to, up to the town of Sardis. You heard of that because we've already studied the church in Sardis. It's just a little bit southeast of Sardis along the, as they say in California, the 585. All right. And uh, that's that's actually 
a road. I didn't know that, never been on it. But Chris could probably find it because I put the word the in front of it. Yeah, right? That, that makes all the difference between the Midwest and California. The 465, the 35, or whatever. So Philadelphia and its region were subject to volcanic activity and earthquakes. They were a very agriculturally rich area, especially regarding grapes. The grapes, I'm no connoisseur, but they, they grow well in that volcanic soil of that region. But with that came earthquakes. And in AD 17, they, along with the city of Sardis, were basically destroyed. And they were built back by Tiberius. It's interesting, a, in 1969, another earth, earthquake hit this region of Turkey, and it wiped out, it wiped out a, a much of it, and I think 53 people were killed. So to this day, they continue to have that problem. So Tiberius rebuilt that city, that region, and they actually renamed the city for a while. They gave him his moment of fame, and the, it called it Neo-Caesarea, the new city of Caesar, but later reverted to its former name. By the writing of this, this sixth letter, of these seven letters to the churches, there was a significant Jewish population. And we could, we could um, but we won't today, go into depth in terms of the, the timing of the writing. I tend to think the writing of this was around A.D. 95. And it, at that time, there were a good number of Jews living in this region. And we can talk about the importance of that here in a little bit comes to play in the scripture that we read. There's really not much of the church that remains today, except for some remains of a church. I think we have a picture, just two big columns that are remaining, and that is, it's now a city called Al-Sahir, which means in Arabic, the city of God. It's about a city of about 48,000 people, smaller than Noblesville, bigger than Cicero. How about that? Okay, that somewhere in there. Um, and other than just the remnants of that church, it's, there's just not much Christian influence there at all. But I want to start here. I want to start with verse 13. So if your eyes go down to the bottom of what we read, you'll be reminded that we've heard this before. Each one of the letters has this statement. And it says, He who has an ear to hear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, this letter, like the other letters, has a message for us today. It has an immediate application for the church in Philadelphia, but not only the church in Philadelphia. It has an application for us in our time. And so as we read it, we need to look at it with with through that lens and that understanding. But it begins with, as do each one of the letters, a self-revelation from Jesus. He introduces himself. He describes himself. And here he describes himself in verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. You see, Jesus is the sovereign, authoritative head of his church, and I think these descriptions demonstrate that. You see, he is the Holy One. That, that is a description, the very name is a description of God himself. It's used throughout Scripture, both old and new, as a description of God. Well, in Acts verse, chapter 2, verse 27, Peter says that of Jesus Christ. You will not leave my soul in hell, 
neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. He quoted that from Psalms. So he is clearly describing Jesus Christ as the Holy One, but it's a word we see referring to God Himself. And what's really interesting, if you want to put this whole passage together, is he describes himself as the Holy One, but as you go down to the end, you see how many times he says, the temple of my God, the heaven of my God. Jesus Christ himself is God, and yet he's talking about my God. Wow, that'll fry your mind unless you have a little bit of background, but the, the, the simple explanation is this. And, and I don't try to oversimplify this, but neither do I assume that, that everybody has this understanding. We understand God to be one God in three persons. That's, I know, already blew your mind, okay? There's one God and described as in three persons. It is a mystery. It is hard to understand. But you have the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right? And so those three make up the Godhead, we're describing. We'll not go a lot further than that, just understanding that God is one. It's not, try, it's not um, mo- belief in multiple gods. He is simply describing himself, the Son of God, as God himself. He is the one, the, though, who is overall. Holy means to be above all, to be transcendent over, okay? But he's not only over all, he is also true. He is the true one, as opposed to the false gods that were worshipped in each of these pagan cities. He was the true one. And 1 John 5.20 describes him this way, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, He is true God and eternal life. He is the true one. He is the one who speaks and it is so. His word can be believed and counted on. His promises are yes and amen. From eternity past to eternity future. And that's important because of the promises he's going to make in this passage. Right? He says also that he has the key of David. This is a clear reference to the Old Testament. We see Eliakim, okay? A gentleman that most of us have never heard of. Unless maybe we are doing three through the Bible in a year. And we might vaguely remember somehow hearing the name of Eliakim. Not a popular, famous guy in our world, but he was in their day. In Isaiah 22, 22, it reads, And I will place on his shoulder... Eliakim, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Wait a minute. We read that somewhere. We just read that about Jesus saying it about himself in Revelation 3. So what that's called, and I hate to take us back to the basics again, but this is what's called a type. Or a foreshadowing, we read of something in the Old Testament that points through, forward to something that has its full fulfillment in the New. Something greater, right? Eliakim, he was over the, the temple treasury. And he had the keys to open and close. He could bring the blessings out of the temple, if you will, right? Jesus Christ is the one who brings the greatest blessings out of the holy, eternal temple. Right? The temple of my God, as he says later. So he is the one who opens and closes. 
He's the one who is in charge of his church. He is the one who is over and working through his church. As Eliakim was the keeper of the storehouse of David, so too. Jesus Christ opens the great treasure house of heaven. And no one else can shut it. No one else can open it. Only Jesus has sovereign authority over his church, over his people. As one author wrote, Jesus has the key of power to open his church as a sure refuge and as a safe preserve forever to those who are admitted to it. So as we see this, this is Jesus Christ, the sovereign one who is overall, who is dependable into his word. He will keep his word from eternity past to eternity future. And he is the one who opens doors. Huh. Guess what comes next? I know your works, he says in verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Huh. So he's the one who opens doors and he's set before us an open door. What is this? We'll get there. Which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Our next point is this. Jesus provides joyous opportunity to his faithful church. And I think this is, this is where we'll spend a, a good bit of our time today as we look at this passage. Because I think in this promise, there is such hope and encouragement to all of us as his people to be faithful. In the New Testament, we see several references to this idea of the open door. We see it in Acts 14.27. God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16.9, a wide door for effective work has opened to Paul. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, a door was opened for Paul in the Lord. And then finally, Paul asked the Colossian church to pray in Colossians 4.3. says that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. You see, that open door is a work that only God can do because it's referring to the hearts and minds of men and women. We can proclaim truth. We can live truth. We can be the light of the world and proclaim that glorious truth. But we cannot make anyone understand it. We can't make anyone believe it. We can't give the, uh, the, the sight, the spiritual sight, nor the spiritual life to accept that that is true. But we can have a part in it. We can be used in that work as God opens a door to be able to walk through and present this truth. And we're going to see just a beautiful promise here in a moment as to who it was that God brought that door, brought through that door in their day. So what does this little power have to do with the open door? Because aren't we the ones who opened the door? I was golfing with a guy 15, 16 years ago, back when I actually golfed. And uh, it was why it just got paired up with him. And we're on about the 17th, 18th hole. And he said, you know, the problem with most preachers is you guys don't close the deal. You don't close the deal. I'm a salesman. You need to close the deal. Don't let them out the door until you close the deal. I said, I can't. He says, what do you mean you can't? Why are you a pastor? I said, I can't. I can't do God's job. It's God's job to close the deal. All I can do is speak the truth, to be faithful to his word. You see, 
This description of little power may stand out to you as being sort of put down. Because in our day, that's how we take it. Oh, you have a little power. You little man, right? You're just a little man. Um, and, and we would take offense to that. Well, you don't have much influence. You don't have many followers. You don't have a very big platform, right? You don't have a very big church. I always cringe a little bit when people say, Oh, yeah, I've seen your church. You've got a big church down there. No, we have a bigger building. Um, it's, we've got a great church. You ought to come in and meet the church, right? It's not, but it's, man, how many churches do they drive by that are great churches? That are powerful churches? That may have 10 people. That may have 50, may have 5,000. It is not about size. Ultimately, it is about faithfulness. And they were a faithful church. This small church, like its city namesake, Philadelphia was loyal. They were a loyal church. And as you think of the church of Philadelphia, I hope that that name will stick and the history behind that name will help you remember the word loyalty. Because this church was loyal to the word of God and they were loyal to the person of Christ. Right? He said that they, as a people, they, they held fast to his word. They kept God's word and they were confessing his name. They knew God's word and rather than succumbing to the pressures of the world around them, they said, no, I, I'm confident in, in what I've been told to believe from God himself, from his word. I be, I've, I've read it and that settles it for me. Rather than the pressures of the world around saying, but, 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 but what about this? What about this theory? What about this idea? fine to enter in to have discussions about those, but in the end they said, you know what, we're going to keep God's word. What does it mean to keep God's word? It means when God's word says it, that we know it and we obey it. We know it and we obey it. And sometimes that's difficult, that's painful, not because of the world out there. Because, let's be honest folks, evil is not out there. Evil's in my heart. Sin is in my heart. And if we think that the job of a parent is to keep them from the evil out there, then we'll set up, like the Pharisees, all these, these fences, all these guards to keep our kids away from the world. And we'll lock them back in this little box. And now, now they're going to grow up and be godly young people. No. Are they keeping God's word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You see, ultimately, it's not about keeping your kid from evil, but dealing with the evil in each of our hearts through the Word of God by being submitting ourselves in obedience and repentance to God's Word. Because it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It can get to the heart of the issue. It's effective for the full equipping of the saints. Unlike me as a parent. I can't come up with enough ways to keep evil from my kids because my kids, like I, before them, could find every way I needed to find evil, right? Because wherever I went, I had my mind and I had my desires and I could find evil. 
And so today, as we think of being a people who keep God's word, we are people who hide God's word in our heart and we submit ourselves to God's word. But that's not all. They were confessing the name of Jesus. They openly were known as people of Jesus. They were people who followed the Christ. And because of that, they would have faced a good measure, like all the other churches we've talked about, for the most part, through these seven, seven letters, they would have been faced some, some ostracism. They would have been shut out and pushed aside and mistreated. But they were faithful. They were faithful in the little bit that God had given. I don't know for sure that this was a small church. But this idea of little power has us believe that that's the description. They weren't on the big corner with their steeple raised high. They didn't have their big footprint. They didn't have a big marketing campaign. They were just a a faithful band of brothers and sisters in Christ. That's that description, I believe, of the little power. In our day, Christian celebrity continues to shape our, our perspective on the world and of most believers. Many have made much power They've had a lot of publicity. They have a lot of popularity, prestige, and and even income. They have big, big budgets. And that's become the measure of Christian accomplishment. And that is incredibly sad. When I think of, of just over a month ago, Laura and Elena and I had the privilege, thanks to your encouragement and the the leadership here, to go on 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 a sabbatical. And, and go away and let Elena get sick for several days. No, just, those of you who know the story, we went for three weeks and Elena was sick for, I think, 11 or 12 of those days. Um, but on, early in that trip, we made a stopover in London. And as we took this tour, this church history tour, um, they led us to this church called St. Mary Woolnith Church. The church where a guy with a somewhat recognizable name, John Newton, was pastor. It was a mega church of 120 seats. 120 seats. That over there would have been bigger than the church where John Newton pastored for 27 years. And 250 years ago, on January 1st of 1973, he shared for the first time the words to the song Amazing Grace and preached a message out of Deuteronomy 17 and, and, and expounded how that, that song came out of Deuteronomy 17. And that brother just preached. In the midst of a very liberal time when being clergy meant you got a good salary and didn't have to worry about stuff, just tow the party line and all will be well, this brother preached the word faithfully, and didn't make a big splash except people began to come and hear the faithful exposition of the word. And one brother who came to Christ while he was serving in parliament came to, uh, to deal with an issue he had. He was so surrounded by corruption and with decisions that he had been part of making that he needed some affirmation that indeed he needed to get out of parliament. And so William Wilberforce walks to St. Mary Woolnith Church, just not far away, and meets with John Newton back in his study. And John Newton basically tells him, serve where God put you. 
And because of that, this dear brother, William Wilberforce, was instrumental in bringing slavery to its knees in the United Kingdom. And you say, oh, yes, they did big things. You're missing the point. A brother in a church of 120 pews was used by God because he was faithful, brought that man to his church, and they pointed out where, where actually, where William Wilberforce would have sat, back in the back corner, and that God used. God. Folks, young people especially, be faithful. Be faithful. And you will find as you are faithful today and tomorrow and this year and the next year, it may not be exciting. It may not be the most exciting mountain peak experience like you had when you went to summer camp, right? But God works in the lives of his faithful ones and he opens doors of opportunity to the praise of his glory, to do his work through you. That's why we're here not to make a name for ourselves. And trust me, I'm not, I'm not beaten up on social media because that's a wonderful place. People do business through there. People use it for good ends. I'm simply saying as a Christian, your influence is not, a, is not determined by your footprint on this earth. It's determined by your faithfulness to God and his word. So be faithful. Be found faithful. So what door was opened in Philadelphia? Look at this door. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, that's kind of rough, who say they are Jews and are not, also kind of rough, but lie, still rough. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. You see, this door, this, I believe this door is described right here in front of us. The door of the gospel was opened up to those in the Jewish community. You say, wait a minute. He said they, were, they claimed to be Jews, but they weren't. We'll get there. I believe that he opened up that door of, in that, that community that they might know Christ. And they would come and worship with these Gentile brothers. Wow. Think about that. Those who profess to be Jews but are most often in these towns harassing the Christians, they come and end up worshiping. A substantial number of them. And how sweet that would have been. And what was it they see? They see that I love you. I have loved you. And so what's the point there? Well, you've got those who claim to be Jews. They are by culture. There's nobody debating whether they are by culture and by birth and genetics and all those things. But they were, they thought they were the beloved of God. Well, they were the chosen of God and they were God's beloved people. But what had they done? They had rejected the Messiah. And so what God says is, man, I've, op- I've opened up this door and I'm, 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 I love these Gentile people, these ones who are not of the beloved ones, right? And I'm going to bring them to saving knowledge of Jesus and they're going to come in and see, oh, wow, you, you love them too. Wow. So what about this really harsh statement by Jesus about the Jews? Well, he's talking specifically about those who were culturally, racially, and religiously Jews, yet I think he's speaking in the same terms that Paul did in Romans 2, 28. 
where he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Okay, so he's saying that the true from from the time he chose the, the, the Jewish people, you could be a Jew by birth and not be one of the faithful ones. One of those who were honoring the Lord God and walking faithfully according to his word. Right. And that had been a battle through the Old Testament. Right. That had been a battle for them. And so he's addressing those who were biologic of their biological lineage, but not spiritually worshiping the one true God. See, so there's this open door to the Jewish people that he opened up. Why? So that they can see the love of God. Again, to point out this city of brotherly love, we see this, the city in which God bestowed his love on his people, both on the Gentiles and on the Jews. And we see the church being played out. We not only see this open door for the mission of the gospel, but we also see the Holy One who is above all and holds the keys to His church, who assures His congregation and all that have ears to hear that Jesus Christ is the all-powerful guardian of His faithful church. And He says in verse 10, He says, Because you have kept My word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. Now, some will immediately recognize here that we get to have an opportunity to talk about end times. Which means we get to have some disagreement together in brotherly love. Right? And that's a good thing. And we're going to find that we're not the first ones to have those disagreements. And let me tell you just very plainly. Some of us probably aren't sure where we stand. There are some who hold fast and firm to their understandings of end times. But let me tell you this very clearly, and I don't say this coming from Stephen Schultz. I, I say this saying, following, following through on our statement of faith that we will not make, we will not make those things a test of whether we can fellowship together as the body of Christ. And if we do, then we need to talk. We do. Because that is not acceptable in the body of Christ. We should try to understand each other. There are dear brothers and sisters in this room that I don't agree with on some of these things. They don't with me. And we are growing together in love for one another and appreciation for one another and our search of the word, our understanding of the word. And that's a beautiful thing. It makes us dig deeper and love one another more. And so, no matter what I say after this, I want us all to be people who are committed to loving God and loving people. Okay? And some of you are sitting here going, what is he about to lay out? This sounds really serious. It's, it, it's serious. But it's something that a lot of us can make more over than what is necessary. Okay? Um, and so, let's, let's, let's walk forward in just being able to try to understand one another. Some see this as a promise already fulfilled. 
They see it as this was a promise to the church in Philadelphia to keep them from an hour of of testing that was about to come upon the Roman world. Um, The persecution of the church in that day by the, the Roman Empire. Okay? What some would claim as the known world. Well, those in China and elsewhere might beg to differ in that day because they were part of the world. Um, but that is one perspective. Okay? There, others would see it as a promise for spiritual protection in the midst of physical tribulation. This is a quote from one brother who says, Jesus is assuring the people that he will provide sufficient sustenance to preserve them in their faith no matter what they face. The same brother would say that, that it's not even biblical to think that God would take them out of, away from tribulation, but that he would carry them through tribulation. And to much of, of that, I would say, yeah, amen, he does. He does. He keeps his church. That is, if you don't take anything else away from it, he is the holy one, the true one, the one who opens and shuts. He will keep his church. But this seems to me, from my perspective and understanding of the word, that there's something missing in that explanation. You see, in the passage, it talks about this idea of keeping from. I will keep you from the hour of tribulation to come upon the whole world. I take this to refer to a coming time of great tribulation in the last days, not a localized tribulation or testing, it's nor just not just regionalized, nor is it generalized just to, to an overall trial or testing through the ages. This idea from means to means out of or away from. Okay, that's that would be different than going through. And again, I understand we have differences of opinions, but that to me is a big one. Right. As I as I look at it, this seems to fit the view that Christ will rapture the church, the believing church prior to the great coming tribulation before his final return to judge the earth or possibly partway through what some might call that a mid tribulational view. Second note is that the hour of tribulation is coming seems to speak of a specific season that was yet to come. Okay, there's an hour of it. And that in, in, in scripture generally refers to a set time, a season, if you will. And we don't have time today to dig into all the prophecies, but we can sit and have that conversation. But finally, that tribulation is spoken of as something experienced throughout the whole world. And I, again, believe that fits with that time in which the Antichrist will have an unprecedented power. And no, Matt, I'm not talking about Nikolai Carpathia. Okay, of the Left Behind series, those of you who are fans. So we likely have some differences. And and but here's what we do know. We aren't the first ones to have these differences. Okay, in the fourth century A.D., Tychonius wrote wrote and this is translated. He didn't write in English, I assure you. Although the church is constantly put to the test by both internal and external conflict, and either individuals partially or the whole generally are attacked by various temptations, yet the hour of temptation may also refer to the time of the Antichrist, who will come in the future. From this hour, Christ the Lord promises that he will free every church that remains firm in his commandments, so that the temptation to ruin might be recognized to be a deception 
That was in his commentary on the apocalypse. That's another name for Revelation. Then Andrew of Caesarea, another, he was in the 5th or 6th century. And again, I know some of us are not historians. We don't care for all the history. I simply say this to say we're in good company. All right? He wrote, the same with, again, sort of the both sides of the coin. By the hour of trial, he speaks either of the persecution against the Christians, which occurred almost immediately by those who ruled Rome at that time, from which he promised that the church would be freed, or he speaks of the, uni- of the universal coming of the Antichrist against the faithful at the end time. From this coming, he pledges to free those who are zealous, for those for they will beforehand be seized upward by a departure from there, lest they be tempted beyond what they are able to endure. So here's what we can be confident of. Even though, did you hear both of them? They're both like, well, it could be this or it could be this. And, and yet, here's what we can be extremely confident about. Jesus Christ will keep his church. And your faithfulness is warranted. Your faithfulness will be rewarded. He goes on to say in verse 11 to assure that reward. I am coming soon. Amen. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will seize your crown. Jesus knows the struggle. He knows your struggle. He, he, he knows in the midst of all the temptation, of all this, the struggle of life, he knows it's tough to hang on and keep his word and hold fast to confessing his name. He knows. But let me tell you in the words of the theologian Toby Mack, help is on the way. Right? It's around the corner. Maybe midnight or midday. But help is on the way. Help is on the way. It's not the idea that, uh, I'm, hey, I see you and I'm coming. I'm coming for you. No. I see you and I'm coming. This has been the constant hope of the church. From the early days forward, the hope of the church has been the coming of the Christ. That is our hope. That all this stuff that is broken and a mess will not be rectified in an election. Will not be rectified by some great person or persons. It will be only made right in that day when the Lord Himself descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, and, and, and deals with this mess. But you see, there's nothing passive about persevering. It's not wait and see. Sit back and watch. Rather, perseverance is active. Perseverance is the action that a believer holding on through faith which God supplies. They believe and they keep on holding on. We are called to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And then he says, why? Why hold on? So that no one will seize your crown. Well, this sounds like losing my salvation. So if I don't hang on, I'm going to lose my salvation. I don't think that this is a salvation passage. I think this is a reward passage. I think this is, in the words of of John, in 2 John 1, verse 8, there's only one chapter, so verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked, what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. That's the picture. Do I know what that reward is? And he's like, well, yeah, it's a crown. If you really think that all one will get is a crown in heaven, like some piece of metal, 
that with jewels in it that you're going to put on your head and then cast at the feet of Jesus. If that's really what you, then I think heaven's going to be so much, so incredible that you're going to be blown away. All right. And you're like, but it says it's a crown. I know we have that discussion more. But when we understand heaven and it's all about Jesus and enjoying all that he is and all that he's created, it's going to be way more than that. And his point is, hang on, because the reward's going to be worth it. And if it's just a piece of metal, I don't think that's worth it. It's going to be worse. It's going to be an expression of the one who held on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the end, when we see him face to face in all his glory, our eyes will be opened and we'll say it was worth every bit of that suffering that I may know the fellowship of his suffering. And I will then understand the Holy One who suffered like as we are yet without sin. I will understand Him and worship Him in a way that I never could have apart from having continued to persevere. He's worth hanging on to. Young people, middle-aged people, old people, older, older than people, older than dirt people. He's worth hanging on to. He's worth hanging on to. No matter what you're going through, no, nothing anyone can promise you will be better or greater than who He is and all that He will be. You see, the reward is great. And listen to what He promises as we come to our closing portion. You see, in, these, in verse 12, He says, The one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Do you hear maybe that there's some permanence? Like this is, this is done. Stamp it, you know. You're in. You know, when we came back from our, our, our little time overseas, you come in and you hand them your passport and try to, try to stand there and not make them give any reason to single you out and send you to another line. Lena and Laura seem to get through well. But yeah, you need to go to that line over there. And, and, but you love it when they finally take your book and stamp it, right? Because it's like, whew, yes, I can, I'm in, folks. If you're in Christ, your visa has been stamped. I will make you a permanent, glorious, beautiful pillar in my presence, in the temple of my God. And how firm is it? You heard the repetition there. The repetition and is, is worth searching out more, but I think suffice it to say today that it is assured, assured, assured to this little band of faithful believers in Philadelphia. He says, I'm going to make you a beautiful, permanent presence in my temple. And you know, we as believers can sometimes diminish what that is, but think about it. That is a, that is a promise of eternal presence and significance for each one who perseveres. That's our final point. To the one out here today who says, I don't feel like much. I'm just a mom. I didn't even get through my to-do list yesterday. I didn't even read my Bible yesterday. 
I haven't read through the Bible in my life. I, I, man, what? I'm just, I'm kind of discouraged in where I'm at as a believer. Oh, friend, remain faithful. Remain faithful to the one who is worth being faithful and loyal to. And he says unto to those who finish well, who finish and persevere, he says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joys of my presence forevermore. And you, the beauty, you will help make up the beauty of heaven. And you say, where are you getting that? Folks, that sea that stands around the throne from every tribe, tongue, and nation are the people of God that were redeemed by God through the death of His beloved Son. And that will be a glorious, beautiful, majestic picture that you will be a part of for eternity. You will be present and you will have the ultimate significance forever in the presence of Almighty God. David, in Psalm 27 and verse 4, says this, One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. David maybe had his sight set a little low, but in the end, David will have what David wished for, except it will be forever in the presence of the Lord. No earthquake will ever knock those pillars down. They'll be permanent. They'll be forever in the presence of God. The faithful few in Philadelphia, the faithful few in Hamilton County, the faithful few scattered around the world will make up the mighty multitudes from the ages in that throne room. Just little old you and little old me in the presence of Almighty God. Friend, I don't care how insignificant you may feel today. That is a majestic thing. That's a glorious thing. And that's his promise to the dear people in Philadelphia and to those who have an ear to hear what the Spirit has said to his church. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we close, let us not... Let our minds wander too quickly. Let us savor the beauty of heaven and the joys of what will be as we consider your presence as we walk back out to face today and tomorrow and whatever may come. That we may go out with a confidence that the Holy One, the True One, the One who opens doors and shuts doors, will keep His church, will reward His church, and give His church a permanent presence and significance in the joys of heaven forever. Lift our eyes up. Lift our eyes to see the One who is worthy of it all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.